Hi, and welcome to Undercover Dad, a podcast that looks at 1970s Detroit through the experiences of an undercover ATF agent. I'm your host, Joe Vince, an assistant editor with Officer Magazine. This is the inaugural episode of the podcast, which we hope is a revealing time capsule that provides a snapshot of what it was like to be in law enforcement and work undercover in a major U.S. city over 50 years ago. We'll see how far police work has come in that time, and if we're doing our job right, we hope you'll be able to take away a few lessons that you can apply to your work out in the field today. This is also a passion project for myself because the undercover agent you'll be listening to for these first-hand experiences happens to be my dad, Joe Vince Jr. Back in the 1970s, he was an agent just beginning his nearly 30-year career with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. They hadn't added explosives to the name yet. He worked first in Detroit and then in Flint, Michigan. During his time with the agency, he also served in Omaha, Nebraska, Washington, D.C., Miami, and Chicago. And he helped create ATF's Crime Gun Analysis Branch, becoming its first chief before retiring. Currently, he teaches at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and he is also president of Crime Gun Solutions, a company he co-founded. So with the introductions out of the way, let's jump right into things. Tell me how how and when you started uh, with uh, the ATF. Okay, let me say first that I really appreciate you doing this because I wish that your grandfather, my dad, I would have videotaped him talking about his uh, World War II experience on the USS Intrepid. Uh, and I didn't do that. And I regret that. And so I, I'm really happy to do this. Now, my starting with ATF uh, was the fact that in my senior year of my undergraduate work, I was a road deputy in Trumbull County, Ohio. And what a great experience that was. And I recommend that to uh, people seeking law enforcement jobs to experience what it's like to be a road deputy and to to interact with, with citizens and criminals. Uh, it, it, it was not only, uh, uh, I, I think, fulfilling, it was a very rewarding career for me uh, at the time because I think it set the stage for my, my federal career. So uh, what year is this then you go from being a road deputy to uh, joining ATF? Yes, I probably started as a road deputy sometime in 1970 and culminated that about a year and a half later in 1971 when I joined ATF. And what, let's get right to it, what was the appeal of uh, ATF? The appeal for me at the time for ATF, it, it, it wasn't uh, an agency that was white collared. And you went down and you worked with local police officers and you worked on the most violent of criminals, people that were causing havoc in communities and you could really make a difference. I, I felt that there was a need for this because of all the unrest that we had in the country. Uh, both in the bombings uh, and as well as the firearms violence that was trending upward. Well, 
give me a little bit of a snapshot of what that was like in the early 70s. What are you talking about in terms of bombings and uh, violent crime? And also, too, the area you're, you're talking about as well. Well, you had several things going on. First, as everybody well knows, you had the Vietnam War, which had a lot of counter demonstrations in the United States. And from that, you had a lot of uh, extremists that were bombing buildings and committing other acts, such acts. And, and that was going on. But also, you started to see a trend where narcotics trafficking, especially heroin at the time, was progressing. And there were a, a, a lot of um, wars over this and shootings were on the rise because of it. And, and the public was fearsome, uh, somewhat similar, not as bad, but somewhat similar to what was happening in today's world. So what was the appeal of uh, doing undercover work? What drew you to that? Well, I saw early on in, in my career that working undercover could produce the greatest amount of evidence against individuals as well as being able to stop these criminals before they had a chance to do their deadly deeds. And especially when you're talking about buying uh, firearms and explosives, that was, was huge. The other thing is you could get a lot of uh, great evidence, incriminating evidence. You could find out other uh, criminal activities that they were involved in. For example, I had a case where, uh, an informant introduced me to a, a, a contractor, a building contractor, who was burning uh, some of his uh, buildings to collect insurance fraud. And I really contacted him because I was trying to get uh, intelligence and, and, and evidence against him for those arsons. And lo and behold, during our first conversation, he contracts me to kill his wife. So you can see what happens by doing that. Another case, uh, uh, I had an individual who was uh, sold a, a machine gun and other firearms to me. And while we're in negotiations, he pulls out a card that says he's a member of the KKK and wants to get me involved in that. So again, working undercover gets you next to the criminal and his associates and is the best way to convict these people. And I truly believe, you know, anybody can make an arrest. That, that's an easy thing. You're under arrest. It's the ability to gather evidence to support a conviction. Because if you don't get a conviction, then you're really not doing justice for victims. So let's go back. That, uh, that guy who <laughs> ended up uh, contracting you for a hit. Uh, when about uh, when did this happen in in your uh, career? Had you just been starting with the ATF, or um, was this a fairly new case, or was this something after you'd been on the job for a while? Yes, I had been on the job for a while, and I was transferred from Detroit to a new office that was opened in Flint, Michigan, and so this was probably about uh, six years on the job at the time. And, you know, it was a very involved case. And, uh, it, it, and I say this because uh, the, the wife was a little estranged now from the husband. 
I don't think they had completely separated. And uh, I had is a to... little estranged, like a little pregnant. <laughs> well, the, the the guy, his whole life surrounded money, and that meant more to him than anything else. And he uh, got involved with this woman uh, while he was probably in his late forties, and she was probably in her early thirties uh, with a child, and so. A, a young daughter. And so uh, as their relationship and their marriage started to grow, she started to see what he was like. And this this really frightened her. So when uh, myself and a Michigan State Police uh, trooper detective uh, went and talked to her about the fact that, that, you know, I'd been hired to kill her, she was reluctant to go with us and go down to the state police barracks uh, because she didn't know if her husband sent this sent us there and this was a way of killing her and so i had to find a way of getting her out of town which i sent her to uh, florida uh, and agents down there uh, uh, guarded her while the investigation went on so we had that aspect of it uh, the other thing is the guy was extremely wealthy uh, and, uh, you know, his illegal activities and some legal activities uh, got into his wealth. And when he was arrested, uh, I received a call from a bondsman who said, uh, just want to ask you, this guy uh, is asking us to put up the money for his bond. What do you think about it? And I said, well, I, I can't recommend anything to you, but isn't it strange that a man that's wealthy is asking you for a loan to bond him out. And so with that, the, he did get the bond and he absconded. He went to Belize and there is no extradition treaty with the United States and Belize. And so he stayed down there for probably uh, two years when the United States Marshal Service, who again, you know, they're responsible for, uh, going after criminals that have outstanding federal warrants, uh, sent him a letter and two tickets on a cruise line to go to Florida that he had won a prize and he would receive it upon docking in Miami. Lo and behold, because of love of money and thinking he was going to get something, he got on that cruise ship and went to Miami where uh, quite promptly the United States Marshals arrested him. And he was sent back to Flint, Michigan, where he pled guilty. And at the time he told the judge, the federal judge, that, you know, it wasn't kind of nice in Belize, that he really had it tough this last year and a half, that it, he had to live in dire conditions and he didn't have heat and he didn't have air conditioning and he didn't have enough food to drink and that he had really already suffered the penalty and he should be put on probation. At which the judge turned to him and said, well, sir, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you to the federal penitentiary and we'll take care of your food, your heating and your air conditioning. And he sent him away for 10 years. So that to me was, was justice. So when you are, uh, you decide you're joined ATF and you decided you want to, do this type of undercover work um what is what's going on in your mind like what 
what is it that um, you need to do uh, to get yourself uh, prepared in that mindset? Well, first of all, another reason that I really liked working for ATF was the fact that every day was different. That you could be working a firearms case uh, against an illegal dealer. The next day you're working against the largest terror dealer in Flint, Michigan, who has firearms, or you're looking at uh, people that are shipping uh, stolen firearms to Chicago uh, in, in exchange for heroin to bring back to Michigan. And it was diverse. And I liked that. There was every type of crime because let's face it, a firearm is two things. One, it's a tool of the trade for criminals. They absolutely have it. Not so much many times that they worry about the police, but that what they worry about is all the other criminals they deal with uh, who want to kill them or take their, their turf, etc. cetera. Uh, but the other thing, it was their Achilles heel. And that was the thing that made them susceptible for us at the time, arresting them. And we didn't many times, I, I was able to get, oh, an abundance of search warrants while I was in, in, in Flint, Michigan, working with Flint police officers, not because we were buying large amounts of narcotics. We didn't need to do that because we had information that these people who were many times felons or the fact that they, they had illegal drugs, which is, and a firearm, which was a federal offense. And we could get search warrants and execute them and seize not only the firearm, but all their illegal narcotics. And what we would do is we would have the uh, Flint Police Department uh, take the case into state court for the narcotics, and we take the uh, firearms case into federal court. And this provides us the chance to really make a difference in that community. And you talked a little bit about uh, politically what the climate was like. What give an idea too of what uh, Detroit and the Flint area, what those places were like uh, uh, in the seventies, particularly well, economically. Right, because it, it it was a far cry from what it is today. Matter of fact, I I felt when I first went there that Detroit was one of the most beautiful cities in the United States, bar none. The auto industry, which was still going full guns, had built up a city that was absolutely magnificent. Uh, at the time, people were coming from all over the world to study the architecture there. And you had great museums that the, the automobile barons had built uh, for the community. It, it, it was a wonderful place and it was very dynamic. The economy was booming. Um, it all centered around car sales. I, I, I remember when we moved into Flint, into our house, uh, my wife was asked, your mother was asked to go to a, a, a get together for the wives in the, in the neighborhood. And of course, and the, the subject came up, you know, what does your husband do? Which shift does he work? And my wife said he works first, second, and third. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, again, you're talking, there was a lot of wealth in that area and a, a lot of uh, employment. There wasn't a lot of unemployment. Uh, benefits were fantastic for, uh, for the workers there. And uh, it, it was a different dynamic. Uh, you know, I, I did arrest 
the guy at the time that was considered the the number one heroin dealer in in that community and when i sat down and was doing his personal history i asked him what his occupation was he said well i'm i'm on disability from the gm factory there and i said what he said yeah he said i was shot there he said oh my- i had a i had a heroin deal that went bad and i was shocked and i and he got disability from general motors for that i mean i i was shocked but that's that's the way it was at the time and uh uh things have, have changed obviously uh and and it's now a, probably a very depressed area well you would think at least that he would be getting workmen's comp from uh the heroin dealers uh union not at that uh, time no yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> So starting, well, let me backtrack a minute. Um, so you've decided, how does, you're in, a, you start with ADF. How do you, I guess, choose to do undercover work? Is it something you are assigned to do? Is it a part, was at that time part of um, specific uh, units or investigations? How do you, how uh, did you get into doing it um, at, at that time? Well, obviously things were different than they are today. We, we in law enforcement has developed a far better strategies and training for doing that, but that wasn't the case back then. And, and I, like many others in this profession, learned from the, the ones that went ahead of me. And I, I was very, very young at the time. Matter of fact, I doubt very seriously that at at 21, uh, maybe close to 22, you could be hired as a special agent. But I was then, and because I was so young, and and really had a baby face, that uh, my nickname was the kid. And you know, you'll find as you mature that you really look back fondly on those times of being the rookie, and that if your fellow colleagues don't tease you, don't fool around with you, then they don't like you. So that was an endearment for me that I look back on very fondly. And now I'm having uh, some of my colleagues back there, especially that are a few older years older than me that are passing and, and talking to them and, you know, the good times that we have, you miss that. Now, having said that, I learned from them because naturally I was on the surveillance uh, that was covering the other agents that were working undercover. And we were wearing uh, (laughs) very, uh, um, oh, I want to say rudimentary or certainly old fashioned today wires at the time. uh, So that we could listen in to see that everything was going okay. And, and, and that sort of propelled me to understand where I would fit in. The, the other thing I learned real quickly is you have to be yourself. If you're going to work undercover, don't try to be something you're not. Uh, because, you know, agents aren't great actors per se. They have to be themselves. And so uh, I, I knew that uh, my persona could never be in undercover where I'd be a dirtbag. So uh, I was able to... Um, produce myself 
and make it that I had some things going for me in the criminal community and I wasn't like those people. And that really, really helped me a lot as soon as I understood that. So again, you, you learn all these things, uh, you get that experience and then you start applying them. And the other thing is it's the challenge. It's the challenge. You know, your adrenaline's rushing, you're meeting people that are very dangerous. You know, they're asking you if you're, you're a cop, you know, are you a narc? And, and you have to learn how to respond to this. And you learn that from other people. And, you know, that, that's a maturation in this job. And we all can look back and say, geez, initially I should have done things better. Uh, and hopefully you learn from that and you become better at doing this. That's it for the first episode of Officer Magazine's Undercover Dad podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Future episodes of the podcast will include a look at what training was like back then, the bonds formed with other agents, how the work affected family life, and the story behind this comment. The secret to working undercover is knowing who you are and being yourself. And that's why I was able to buy heroin in a three-piece suit. You can find the Undercover Dad podcast at Podbean, Apple, and Spotify. And while you're doing that, also check out Officer Magazine's new Officer Roll Call podcast. Stay safe and see you next time.